I want to talk to you about uh, someone this morning, a prophet from the Bible, uh, quite a famous prophet. Not sure how much you know about him. Uh, do we have any Jeremy's in the audience today in the sanctuary? Anybody named Jeremy? Do we have a single Jeremy? Not one Jeremy. All right. But well, we know that in the New Testament, Jeremy is, uh, is one of the ways that uh, they say the word Jeremiah. They, they describe as Jeremy or uh, Jeremias, I think, in the New Testament. But they're referring to Jeremiah from the Old Testament, that great prophet. And I don't know how much you know about him, but he had quite a life. He had quite a ministry. Not, a, not an easy one. Not an easy one at all. He is sometimes referred to as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah was the son of a priest. He, was, uh, he never married at the direction of God. As part of his ministry, he was to never marry. There was a time where, as part of a prophecy, he was directed to go and purchase some land. That was to show that uh, God was going to restore the land. Uh, probably one of the most uh, strange things that uh, God ever asked him to do was to go buy a new girdle. I think that's the term that the King James uses, a girdle, and uh, to wear it without washing it. And then to go stick it in a hole in the river and he leave it there for a long, long time. And then he went and retrieved it and it was all falling apart. And that was an example uh, to Judah. Jeremiah was frequently ridiculed. Jeremiah was threatened. His very life was threatened, even by his own countrymen. Jeremiah was tortured. Jeremiah was imprisoned. The storyline of Jeremiah is basically the northern kingdoms, Israel has been taken captive by Assyria, and they are, they are no more. They are, they are all distributed, and, and there really is no Israel anymore. There is only Judah. And they have not been faithful to God. And so Jeremiah's role is to go to Judah and tell them, you need to surrender to Babylon because they're going to conquer you. They're going to conquer you as a lesson from God about your disobedience. Now, you can imagine how that, how that prophecy, how that message would go over. The, 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 the tribe of Judah and Benjamin believing all their lives that they are special, that they are hand-selected by God, that they have God's special blessing, that they are God's special people, that they are protected. They have the temple. They have Jerusalem. They have the holy temple of God. And Jeremiah said, it's all going to burn down. You're not going to have it anymore. The only way to save your life is to go surrender to King Nebuchadnezzar. That didn't go so well. Through his, uh, through his career ministry, there was a time where uh, the temple chief had Jeremiah beaten and put into stocks for what he was saying. That's from Jeremiah 20. There was a time that his countrymen all said, let's execute this guy. Let's kill him. And the Lord spared his life. That's from Jeremiah 26. I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah 36, first of all. He's, uh, Jeremiah ends up uh, speaking to a couple of different kings. Actually, there are several kings that he ministers to in Judah. But in chapter 36, go to verse 21. Just a, sort, a short passage, passage here. And uh, this is a section where Jeremiah has talked to his scribe, Baruch. He has dictated to Baruch. Baruch has written down this scroll. 
And uh, so now it goes before these uh, men of the king, and they say, we've got to get this before the king. So starting in verse 21, it says, So the king sent Jehud to bring the scroll, and he took it from Elishama, uh, the scribe's chamber where it had been stored. And Jehud read it in the hearing of the king and in the hearing of all the princes who stood beside the king. Now imagine that. These are the words of Jeremiah the prophet about what is to come, the word of God to the kingdom of Judah being read in the king's hearing now from the scroll that Baruch has written at Jeremiah's dictation. The king, it says in verse 22, was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning on the hearth before him. And it happened when Jehud had read three or four columns, the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. You got that? The king is listening to the words being read from the scroll. From the scroll, he reads the words of Jeremiah the prophet of what is to come. The king is listening to that and he says, I don't, I don't care for that. Let's cut that piece out and throw it in the fire. And he listens to some more. I don't like that either. Let's cut that out and throw that in the fire. And by the time he's done, the entire scroll has been cut up and thrown in the fire. He wants nothing to do with any of it. Turn two chapters farther forward to uh, Jeremiah 38. I'm starting on verse 2. And now he is, and now this deals with King Zedekiah. Thus says the Lord, these are the words of Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, he who remains in this city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence, but he who goes over to the Chaldeans shall live his life, lost my place, uh, but he who goes over to the Chaldeans shall live, his life shall be as a prize to him and he shall live. Thus says the Lord, this city shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which shall take it. Therefore the princes said to the king, Please let this man be put to death, for thus he weakens the hands of the men of war who remain in this city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man does not seek the welfare of this people, but their harm. And Zedekiah the king said, Look, he's in your hand. The king can do nothing against you. In other words, the king said, Yeah, go ahead, kill him. He's in your hand. In the, uh, in the clear word, uh, Bible, if any of you are reading that, I, I think he says something in there that all the people are upset because he is, he is causing dissension among the troops. He's ruining the good morale of the troops because he's talking about how they're going to be defeated. So he's beaten, he's put in stocks, they try to execute him. When he writes something, they burn it up in the fire. There's one point, actually, uh, if I had kept reading in this section in Jeremiah 38, they continue in verse 6. They grab him and they take him and throw him down a well or a cistern. And he lands in the muck below. There's no water in there. He lands in the muck and they leave him there to die. For what? Why all this angst against Jeremiah? What was it that Jeremiah was doing? What was it that he was presenting that he was deserving of torture, of ridicule, of threats, of, of uh, near death, of imprisonment? told the truth. That was Jeremiah's crime. He told the truth. And for that, he was punished. Let me ask you something. Have you ever tried to convince somebody of a truth 
and they wouldn't hear it. They just absolutely were not going to listen to you. I have a cousin. Actually, it's my mom's cousin named Willard. He's a professional truck driver. And uh, he and I one time got into a rather uncomfortably heated uh, friendly discussion about seatbelts. And I was trying to explain all the, all the logic, all the statistics, all the studies that show that you're much better off to wear a seatbelt if you're in an accident. You're much less likely to incur injury or death if you're wearing a seatbelt. It's not a guarantee, but it certainly puts things much more in your favor. And he would have none of that. And he said, those seatbelts are death traps. They're created by, I don't remember if he said the automotive industry or some government or something like that, um, to cause greater problems and to earn money for some industry. And, and he just absolutely would not listen to what I considered to be the facts or the truth. I recall a time when I was in New London that a, uh, a police officer from another agency who lived in our community had come to me uh, sharing some very personal, personal stories and concerns. He was very upset. His wife was cheating on him. He had found out about it. And uh, his wife was, was uh, having an affair with another married man. And uh, he had gone to that married man's wife and explain this situation to her about what was going on and all the evidence that he had, and she would not hear it. She absolutely refused to believe it. No matter what he said, no matter what he pointed out to her, she said, it is not so. And if you think that you've never seen somebody reject a truth or only believe what they want to believe, all you need to do is go to the funeral, a Christian funeral, for a scoundrel. You go to the funeral of a scoundrel, and if it's being performed by a, by a uh, Christian minister, uh, invariably you will learn that that scoundrel is in a better place. Is that because it is so, or is that because that's what we want to believe? There is a, uh, a sweet and it's fair to say this, little old lady in New London. She is little and she is old. There's this sweet little old lady in New London. Her name is Viola, who I would have regular visits with probably about once a month. Viola is a wonderful person, uh, very healthy, uh, just the model of fitness. Um, And she would call frequently and talk to our officers or talk to me about the neighbors who were dealing drugs, and they would signal, the neighbors would signal to each other, whether they had the drugs in the house or not, by whether the dog was in the doghouse or not in the doghouse. And she would report that to us. Furthermore, the neighbors knew that she was contacting us, and they were after her. And so what they would do is that they would sneak into her house through the, basement, through the cracks in the basement wall, and they would intentionally fray the fabric on her couch. And so she would put duct tape up on all the cracks in the basement walls, on all of the concrete. Wherever there was a crack, she would put up duct tape to keep the neighbors from sneaking in at night and fraying the fabric on her couch. And nothing I said could convince her otherwise. Now, she's a little bit of a a, a different kind of case. She's very sincere in her belief. I, I felt bad because here was someone who really felt terrorized, felt unsafe, and there was nothing I could do to change, to make her feel safer. 
What do you do with somebody who won't, who believes that the neighbors are sneaking through, getting into the house through the cracks in the basement wall? What do you do with somebody like that? You don't solve their problem with reason. You, you find yourself putting duct tape on the walls, fortunately. But we all have bias, whether intentional or not. We have biases that affect how we perceive truth. And sometimes those biases stand in the way of us receiving truth. We are very much like that. The story is told. Picture this in your mind. It's told this way intentionally. I don't mean it to sound uh, uh, insensitive or anything, but it's told this way intentionally. Out behind this shack, there is uh, a big Indian smoking a pipe sitting in a chair. Picture that. A big Indian sitting in a chair, smoking a pipe. And up to the big Indian walks this little Indian. And the little Indian uh, begins talking with the big Indian. Now, the little Indian is the big Indian's son. But the big Indian is not the little Indian's father. Now, how can that be? Big Indian is a little Indian's mother. Your mind didn't want you to see that because when I said big Indian, you pictured a man, especially when I said that he was, or that the, the big Indian was smoking a pipe. And so you already created this mental image or a bias that said big Indian is male. And that's how we are. We have biases. We have things that we very often unintentionally use as a filter towards the truth, towards the facts that are around us. Hezekiah was very much like that. He would not believe. He refused to believe that God would allow his holy temple to be destroyed, that he would allow his holy people, his special chosen people, to be taken captive, even though God's own messenger was telling him otherwise. The Jews refused to believe that the Messiah was a humble, peaceful, non-political servant. They couldn't see that as truth. The Jews couldn't see. They wouldn't believe that salvation could be freely available to Gentiles, to Samaritans, even to Romans. Their bias would not allow them to see that. There are those in our world who believe the Holocaust never happened. There are those in our world who believe Elvis is alive. Hope I'm not hitting too close to home there. The power to believe what we want to believe is strong enough to overcome great tides of opposing evidence. I repeat that. The power to believe what we want to believe is strong enough to overcome great tides of opposing evidence. George Bernard Shaw said it this way. The moment we want to believe something we suddenly see all the arguments for it and we become blind to the arguments against it. You know, there are those who believe the earth is flat. I don't know if young people... Growing up, we always heard about the Flat Earth Society. I don't know if young people hear about that anymore or not, but it's true. There is a Flat Earth Society. 
I'm reading a little bit here from their webpage. The modern age of the Flat Earth Society dates back to the early 1800s when it was founded by Samuel Robotham, an English inventor. Uh, His flat earth views were based largely on literal interpretation of Bible passages. Can you think of any Bible passages that suggest the earth is flat? Holding back the four corners of the earth or going to the ends of the earth. There's much language like that in the Bible. And in their model of thinking, the earth was a flat place and the sun revolved around it. That's the way they saw things. Well, the Flat Earth Society used those Bible passages, took them literally to mean that the earth must be flat. This fellow, this inventor, held that the earth is a flat disk, so a round flat disk centered at the north, uh, with the center at the North Pole and bounded along its southern edge by a wall of ice with the sun, moon, planets, and stars just a few hundred miles above the surface of the earth. The Flat Earth theory spread to the United States largely in the town of Zion, Illinois, not that far from us, where the Christian Catholic apostolic church leaders promoted the theory. Flat Earthism remained in Zion, gradually becoming less popular into the the 50s. The International Flat Earth Society was formally founded in 1956 by Sam Shenton, a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. And over time, society membership increased to over 3,000 people. In 95, they had a fire. It destroyed much of their archives and their membership lists. And after several years of inactivity, they're back. The Flat Earth Society is alive and well, resurrected in 2004, remains active today at theflatearthsociety.org, and they officially reopened themselves to new members on the 30th of October, 2009, so you may join if you so wish. They have a wiki page, and I want to read a couple of things off of there. This website is dedicated to the unraveling of the true mysteries of the universe and demonstrating that the earth is flat and that round earth doctrine is little more than an elaborate hoax. Throughout the years, it has become a duty of each Flat Earth Society member to meet common round earther in open, avowed, and unyielding rebellion, to declare that his reign of error and confusion is over, and that henceforth, like a falling dynasty, he must shrink and disappear, leaving the throne in the kingdom of science and philosophy to those awakening intellects whose numbers are constantly increasing, whose march is rapid and irresistible. Wouldn't you like to join that crowd? But they have, interestingly, there on the website, they have a question and answer. People can post a question and they answer it. So I chose a few of those. First question, is this a joke? (laughs) Answer, this site is not a joke. There are people who seriously believe the earth is flat. However, there are also people who do not. Question, why do you believe the earth is flat? A, it looks that way up close. In our local reference frame, it appears to take a flat shape, ignoring obvious hills and valleys. Question. When traveling in a straight direction, you always reach the same point on the globe from where you started. How can that happen if the earth is flat? The earth is in the shape of a disk. When one circumnavigates it, one is actually moving in a great circle around the North Pole. and You end up at the same place. All right. Question. Exactly what shape is the earth if it is flat. Is it a square flat? Is it a circle flat? It's a circle, like the UN logo. However, the earth is not two-dimensional. It is in the shape of a cylinder. Picture a snare drum with a a ridge around the edge. Well, why doesn't water run off the earth? Answer. You may notice that in this model, the Antarctica is a great ring around the disk. This stops the water from escaping. 
Antarctica as a continent does not exist. Question, what about night? Answer, the sun is a spotlight. Here's the disc. The sun is a spotlight which shines its light on a concentrated area. And not everywhere on earth will be in it at once. All right. It's one of my favorites. What about lunar eclipses? You know, a lunar eclipse is when the earth comes between the sun and the moon, casts a shadow on the moon. If everything's up above, how can that be? What about lunar eclipses? Answer, a celestial body known as the anti-moon passes between the sun and the moon, and this projects a shadow upon the moon. How many of you have seen the anti-moon? Question, if you go directly south, won't you eventually fall off the edge of the earth? Answer, yes, you will. (laughs) I only raise that because it really shows the power of protecting a belief, what you want to believe, rather than exposing your belief to, to debate and to open study and dialogue. Maybe you've been in that position. Maybe you felt yourself in that position where you believed something, but you didn't want to face any kind of inquiry about why you believed that. Because maybe you weren't even sure why you believed that. You felt uncomfortable to address it. You know, Dr. we all know the name Dr. Ben Carson, the, uh, uh, the famous neurosurgeon who uh, really made his fame when he separated conjoined uh, twins. Um, He is quite a philanthropist. He is quite an outspoken Christian. He is quite a scholar. He is quite an accomplished scientist, if you will. On May 14th, this this is from a newspaper article uh, that was written early in May of this year. On May 14th, noted philanthropist and neurosurgeon Dr. Ben Carson is scheduled to give the commencement address at Emory University and receive an honorary degree. But there is a problem. In recent weeks, Emory faculty and students have asked the university to disinvite Dr. Carson. I love that word. Disinvite Dr. Carson because he is a critic of evolutionary theory and he is an advocate of creationism. Faculty and staff contend that Dr. Carson's great achievements in medicine allow him to be viewed as someone who understands science. And that would pose a direct threat to science that rests squarely on the shoulders of evolution. The anti-Carson letter describes how there is overwhelming evidence of ape-human transitional fossils and how this evolution process has advanced an ability to develop animal models for disease that even the work of Dr. Carson himself is based on and uh, advanced fostered by an understanding of evolution. The letter then argues that the theory of evolution is as strongly supported as the theory of gravity. And there's a fellow who wrote uh, an editorial about this Uh, I'm taking just an excerpt of what he talked about. He talked about how wrong it was for us to censor someone from speaking what they believe. Or actually, in this case, to censor Dr. Carson from speaking not what he believes, but because of what he believes. He wasn't going to talk about evolution. He wasn't going to talk about creationism. But because of what he believed, they weren't going to let him talk. 
Here's the editorial. Don't think that bullying in academic settings is exclusively a phenomenon of adolescence. Adults also bully adults. That's what's happening now at Emory University. You can be a brilliant, innovative pediatric neurosurgeon at a skyscraping top medical school in addition to being a generous philanthropist with an inspirational up-from-dire-poverty personal story plus a Presidential Medal of Freedom winner and a best-selling writer whose memoir was turned into a TV movie but in the hands of academic bullies. If you once shared your critical thoughts on evolutionary science and its moral implications, well... Everything else about you suddenly dwindles to very little. This is how Darwinists maintain the fiction that the scientific community has reached a freely determined consensus in favor of Darwinian evolution and against intelligent design. The consensus is maintained by intimidation, by bullying. It's a farce, but for vulnerable people in academic life, it's a scary farce. Dr. Carson did deliver the commencement address. You can listen to it online if you'd like to. Just... Emory University, Dr. Carson, you can watch a clip of it. He's very gracious. They treated him well. The, uh, the faculty, faculty who were up front treated him well, and he gave them just a wonderful presentation. But the power of protecting a belief rather than exposing it to debate and study is great. And you and I, because we are humans, just like those Jews, just like Hezekiah, just like Jehoiakim, We do the same thing, just like the Flat Earth Society. We're often afraid to expose our beliefs and to try to figure out what really is the truth, what God wants us to know. Did you know that Ellen White got into the Flat Earth debate? Well, I don't know if it's fair to say it that way. Someone tried to drag her into the Flat Earth debate. I'm reading from... uh, A piece here, this is from uh, a manuscript back in 1904. It says, the Central New England camp meeting opened on Thursday evening, August 25th. Ellen White had tarried at the sanitarium to be present. The tent was pitched about a mile from the sanitarium, and she spoke five times during the camp meeting. She had to contend with a rather erratic church member. Have you ever had to contend with a rather rather erratic church member? Uh, She had to contend with a rather erratic church member who was on a crusade to save Seventh-day Adventists from the belief that the world is round. You kind of picture that? You got somebody who it's just their mission. They're just bound and determined to make sure that the Adventist church doesn't fall for this round earth stuff. And so that has become his his ministry. So it says he sought her support for the flat earth theory. And I'm sure he was going through all the Bible texts. Here was her answer, which she delivered apparently up front. I have a message to this people in regard to the life they must live in this world to prepare them for the future life, which measures with the life of God. We have not to do with the question of whether the world is round or flat. In other words, she said, don't worry about it. When it comes to your salvation, Don't worry about whether or not the world is round. Seek first the kingdom of God. Throughout her ministry, Ellen White invited young people to become intelligent Christians, to use their reasoning powers for service to God's glory and the good of humanity. Acquiring new knowledge was never perceived as an end in itself, but always as a bigger purpose to lead people to salvation, either one's own or that of others. She also said that prejudice or bias 
should not bar the mind against the reception of truth. And she encouraged the search for new insights. Quote, the Bible must not be interpreted to suit the ideas of men, however long they may have held these ideas to be true. We are not to accept the opinion of commentators as the voice of God. They were erring mortals like ourselves. God has given reasoning powers to us as well as to them. I believe, Kevin Wilkinson believes, that God has new truths that he wants each one of us to learn. I don't think he wants us to be stagnant with what we know. He wants us to continue to learn about him, about ourselves, about our call in life. But we're afraid of what those truths might be. Or perhaps we find them inconvenient. Maybe they conflict with our own plans. I used to keep a little sign-up in my office that said, To know a truth well, one must have fought it out. One must have fought it out. How many of the truths that we espouse have we fought out? And how many of them do we just accept blindly? Another famous quote, There is none so blind as he who will not see. Let me ask you this, church family. What is the truth when you put it in shackles? It is the truth. And what is the truth when you throw it down a cistern, as they did to Jeremiah? It is the truth. What is the truth when you run away from it, when you attack it, when you draw your sword against it? It's the truth. And what is the truth when you say, I don't believe that, that's a bunch of hogwash? It's the truth. What is the truth when you intentionally, repeatedly refuse to listen to it or even consider it? It's still the truth. In John 8, Jesus was speaking to the Jews who refused to accept his truth. He said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I didn't come on my own, God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks in his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. And yet, because I tell the truth, you won't believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why won't you believe me? What is the truth that God wants you to know, that God wants you to learn, that you've been shutting the door to, that you've been plugging your ears to, because you're afraid of what it might be? It might be something as contrary as telling Hezekiah you need to surrender to the Babylonians. Well, that's completely against everything I've ever understood, everything I understood about my, my faith and where God called me to be and who we are in the temple and all. God might have some very disturbing truth for you, inconvenient, disturbing truth. But whether you throw it down a cistern, refuse to listen to it, it's still the truth. And the truth will set you free. Let's pray. God Almighty, 
You know the truth. You are the truth. Let this be the prayer of each one here today. Honest and open, Father. Whatever you say is true, show me the truth. I give you permission to break down all my biases, all of my selfish beliefs, so that I can plainly see the truth. Don't let me find truth in myself. Don't let me find truth in other men. Prevent me from letting my faith become flat earth. Show me your truth, whatever it may do to me. Almighty God and author of all truth, I believe in my heart that you have new truths that you want each person here to learn. Maybe that truth is something about your own call for them in their life, where they are to go, who they are to go to. Maybe that truth is some new awareness uh, for their doctrine, for their salvation, something that they hadn't considered before. But you do not want us to be stagnant, Father. You want us to grow and learn. You expect us to use our minds, and you want to impress on us new truths. Father, open our eyes. Open our ears, open our hearts, and help us to be honest and forthright in seeking your truth for us. We pray in the name of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen.